Welcome to the Cops and Writers Podcast. On this show, you will learn how to write the best crime-related novel or screenplay possible. Your host, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, worked the streets in one of the nation's largest police departments for over 25 years. Ride along with O'Donnell and his expert guests as they help you navigate the oftentimes confusing and misunderstood world of law enforcement. O'Donnell and his guests on this show do not represent any law enforcement agency. The content of this show is not meant to be legal advice. If you think you need a lawyer, you probably do. Hey, Cops and Writers, thanks for being here with us today for episode 29 of the Cops and Writers podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I'll be your host for today's show. My first order of business is to thank those of you who are patrons of the show. All of your generosity helps pay for the software, equipment, and my time producing this show. Yes, you too can become a patron for less than a cup of coffee or a pint of Guinness. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash cops and writers. I would also like to thank all of you who purchased my books in the Cops and Writers series. I would also like to thank everyone who has pushed the rate and review buttons for my podcast. I truly appreciate it. Is it hot in here, or is it my two special guests today who are both former firefighters, now romance authors? On today's episode, we will be discussing firefighting with my two special guests, Lolo Page and Kay Kennedy. Lolo was a wildland firefighter in Montana and Alaska, and Kay was a city firefighter in Long Island. Both give us insights into the culture and the everyday life of being a firefighter in these two different, yet similar fields of firefighting. Both of my guests are now successful full-time romance authors who share what is working well for them in their author careers and what is not. During this episode, you will learn how Lolo Page started her career in wildland firefighting and the training and equipment that she used to fight wildland fires. How Kay, a third-generation firefighter, started her career as a city firefighter and the training and equipment she used to fight fires. How both Lolo and Kay's experience in theater and stage helped them with their author careers. What the biggest errors and misconceptions that authors make when writing stories about firefighters. And the best book marketing tricks and practices they both use for success. All this and more on today's episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. Lolo Page and Kay Kennedy. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Yeah, this this show is a little bit different because I've never had two guests on at the same exact time. So, hey, this is all new ground for the Cops and Writers podcast, and you're blazing the trail, as we should say here. But our theme today is going to be firefighting, since both of you were firefighters and you're both authors. And tell you what, I'll start out with Kay. You were a firefighter. How long ago and where did you work? Could you kind of fill us in a little bit about that? Sure. So I spent about eight years uh, at the fire department on Long Island in New York. And I'm a third generation firefighter. So I grew up in the firehouse with my dad, my grandfather. They were all firemen. And so it's something I was always around. And as an only child, I was my dad's opportunity, you know? So I got a tackle <laughs> box when I was born and um, I joined the fire department. Yeah. So. How old were you when you uh, joined? So I started off as a junior firefighter. So I was actually involved from the time I was 12. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when did you go into the fire academy or how did the fire academy work? Where, um, you sure. So when I was, because I was a junior, I was able to join up at 17. 
Um, otherwise you'd have to wait till 18, but I was 17 when I was able to. And then I ended up, um, so I spent a few years, I spent several years on the department and then I, I ended up getting injured in a fire and hurt my back. And that was the end of that for me. Oh, oh. As far as the selection process and everything goes with that, that was not too long ago, probably, but what was the selection process? What kind of academy did you go through? What kind of training? Sure. So um, there's definitely an application period and every, every department has different criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really is going to vary for those of you, I know this is geared towards authors. So for where you're writing your book, it's really going to vary in terms of what the selection is and whether it's volunteer or paid, that makes a difference too. Um, but there's the application period and then you go to the academy and go through the, the training and the classifications. Um, different states have different requirements as well. So different certification levels that you need to hold. So with me, I didn't want to go into the EMT paramedic side of things, but I did have to become a certified first responder or a CFR, which is basic medical first aid that you have to be able to provide on Mm -hmm. scene. So I did have to do that. We did have to do hazmat training as well as required. And then you take the physical test, you take a written test, and that was that. Okay. So you go off to the academy. How long was the academy for? Um, That's a good question. It's, it's like continuous training. So it's not okay. so much, ne- it wasn't so much necessarily like the FDMI or the NYPD where it's every single day oh, um, okay. for a, for a specific like time period where it's like straight up going to school. So it was more, mm-hmm. it was more like in combination with working at the same time. So you oh. would do training with the department itself and then also go to the academy. So it was like continuous ed essentially. So you're, you're a probationary firefighter for a year. And okay. so you have the, all of the training and stuff going on that entire time. So you can so actually become a, a full interior firefighter. Did they call you a probie? Yes. Okay. Yeah. In Milwaukee, where I was at, they called them cubs. Hey, cub, get over cubs? here. Yeah. <laughs> like cub scouts. Yeah. Hey, cub, get like over that. here. Go cl- clean the bathroom, you know, mm-hmm. roll up the hose. You know, they always got the dirty oh, jobs. Yeah. They always got, always. you know, but you know, that's, that's how you gain respect. That's how you, know. you pay your dues. Right now for context, can you say where you were a firefighter? Like how big of a department it was that kind of thing? Sure. So um, it was a town, it was a town on Long Island. Um, so in terms of how many firefighters there were, um, there was different departments in the, there was different like firehouses in the town in my house, particularly, I want to say there was something like a hundred active. Um, so that were actually like stationed at my house. If that makes sense. Now, how many females were on the job when you were there? About five out of about how many you think uh, firefighters? Out of the hundred. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So, you know, let me back up a little bit. What did your mom and dad think about you doing this? So my parents weren't thrilled about it. Um, okay. It definitely took took some convincing to, because, so I'm going to out myself here, but I also used to be a beauty pageant queen. So I okay. had like state and international titles. So I was like that anomaly, right? Because right. everyone used to make fun, you know, she's, always has her nails done, but she's not afraid to get dirty. You know, that was okay. like what everyone used to tease me about. Um, so my mom was not very happy because it would hurt my modeling career. <laughs> um, <laughs> my father was worried about me getting injured, of course. Sure. And 
with him too. And he was an assistant chief at the time. I believe when I joined up, he was already an assistant chief. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a different dynamic with that as well, because he was in charge of my well-being. Oh, so sure. that was, that was tough, I think, for him. And it took a, it took a while, um, especially because at that point he'd had over 30 years on the department. So yeah. he had a little of that old timer mindset sure. and wasn't sure that his daughter, a woman, could really do it, you know? So there was a little bit of, of that for him to overcome. And he loves to tell this story. We were at this one fire that was in a temple and it was a a giant facility and it was one of their event halls that caught fire. They were redoing it. And Mm -hmm. the contractors had left a pile of sawdust, which can self combust. So it lit the whole place up. So my father called for a two and a half attack line. So there's, there's different size attack lines. There's an inch and three quarter, which is what's typically used for house fires. A two and a half is a larger diameter. So more water um, used for bigger fires. That thing is heavy. It's like a oh, yeah. 100 pound hose. So um, he calls for a two and a half and he turns around and he sees little old me coming up the stairwell with this two and a half line. And I think that <laughs> was the moment that I want him over because to this day, he still loves to tell that story. Aww, very <laughs> cool. Now, what yeah. did you do to prepare yourself for becoming a firefighter? Did did you like start working out like a fiend or did you start lifting weights Definitely. or what did you do? Yeah, definitely. So I'm small. I'm only five feet. So I had an extra okay. challenge um, to prove myself because sure. I was a woman and I was small. Mm-hmm. So I had to really work hard to prove myself. So I was already, like I said, I was modeling. So I was already fit and into fitness. So I mm-hmm. was taking care of myself physically that way. But I definitely upped it in terms of focusing on strength training. And then when it came to taking the physical exam at the academy, they have actually a women's exam, which gives you some extra time. Um, but cool. I opted to take the men's test cool. to Very prove good. myself yeah. further um, because I did have to, I did have to try harder. Um, mm-hmm. There's, there's no doubt about that. I had to try harder. So I did opt to take the men's test. Yeah. And when I was going through the police Academy, our Academy was six months long mm-hmm. and you didn't have to stay there overnight, but you know, it was Monday through Friday, eight to four and the PT part, there was no differential between the females and the males. And the the initial test to get on, either you passed it or you failed it. And it didn't matter if you were male or female. So there was that, you know, you would, I remember there was a, a gal in my class that was, she was barely five foot, maybe a hundred pounds, but man, she, she did everything that the guys did. So that just earns extra credit. You know, you you definitely have the respect for somebody. It's like, you know, but there wasn't an opportunity for it to be any less challenging, you know, that kind of thing. And the same goes for the firefighters in Milwaukee. It's, it's a long Academy. I think theirs is about six months. We shared the same room, the same building. So, okay. you know, we shared the same gym and we'd see them working out. They'd saw us working out. They had, you know, we saw them, you know, running around the parking lot. They saw us running around the parking lot. You know, we saw them chopping wood, you know, we had a really cool burn tower. I don't know if you had one yep. of those. Yeah. that. Yeah. I got in the burn tower a couple of times when we'd get sprayed with, you know, like pepper spray or, you know, that type of thing. So, you know, (laughs) they gas us in the burn tower. I was like, all right, well, sure. Why not? You know, it sounds like fun. Add an extra challenge to it. Yeah. What the heck? Why why wouldn't you? Right. So Lolo, now you were a firefighter as well. When did your career in firefighting begin? Oh gosh. Um, I'll be dating myself, but what the heck, um, back in the seventies. Okay. Um, yeah. And, um, it was in Montana with the U S forest service. 
And back then, everybody was coming out of, um, they'd come back from Vietnam with the GI Bill. So there are a lot of guys that came out of the forestry department um, with degrees. And so I was in the forestry department. I was trying to get a job in that. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty difficult to do back then. Because back then they had these forestry rosters for forestry and fire science and okay. out of Portland and you for the West Coast. And you had to get on those rosters in order to get hired. They were quite competitive. Um, okay. And with vet status, I, I had a real hard time with that. So what I did was I chose to go into seasonal firefighting. Um, they had applications at school where I went to school at the University of Montana. Mm-hmm. So I just applied there and got hired and then they trained me. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by the thrilling audiobook Avenging Adam, book one in the FBI K9 thriller series, written by author Jody Burnett. Sparks fly between hotshot FBI agent Rick Sanchez and no nonsense FBI K9 handler Kendra Dean as they chase a ruthless serial killer. Witness an electrifying blend of suspense, romance, and redemption, where internal conflicts challenge our heroes as much as their target does. Will they catch the killer before it's too late? Grab Avenging Adam now. It's more than a story. It's an experience. Get 50% off the Avenging Adam audiobook at jody-burnett.com forward slash cops and writers. Okay, so what was the training like for that? Like, what what did that look like? It was pretty extensive. Um, the first thing they run you through is S-190, Introduction to Fire Behavior. Okay. And they educate you on... Um, uh, fire, well, fire behavior um, in wildlands, and um, then you progress through to uh, firefighting, direct mm-hmm. attack, indirect attack, and they present you with all the safety stuff and your 18 um, watch out situations and all that kind of thing. So it's, and then every year when you return, you have to take a refresher training, which is usually three to five days. So, now, I don't know a lot about that. Would you be considered a smoke jumper or what was the the, the lingo? I'd never jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. But there are women that have done it, and my hat's off to them, boy. I'll tell you, um, the first one, Deanna Shulman, she was the first female smoke jumper, and she's amazing. Mm. But, no, we're just um, – you just get a firefighter. Um, you get a red card is what they call it. So once you're, you're red carded and then you have your different, uh, what you're red carded for, what you've been trained for. And I was on a type one crew back then. So that's what my um, ICS card had. And then you can, you know, you can apply to be trained for hotshot is kind of the Delta force of fire wildland firefighting Mm -hmm. and then smoke jumping. That's a whole different, that's the whole different deal. So what did you do? I did the type one handline crew. On so what exactly is that? Like what, what would you do? What does that look like? Um, well, you're, you're on a crew of about 18 people, 18 mm-hmm. to 20 people. And you're trained to, um, in what they call direct attack, which is you get out there, um, around the parameter uh, around a flank. We have the left flank and the right flank of a fire and okay. then the head of the fire, which is the progressive running part. And this was in Montana? Uh, Yes. Well, and in Alaska, too. I've done both. Okay. 
But down there, it's a whole different deal. You can dig fire line pretty easily or else you have a cat that will take down the timber and you can get a wide line, say 20, 25 feet wide. Um, the thinking is that the fire won't cross, okay. hopefully. Um, but so oftentimes we hear how it jumps the lines, the containment lines, and that's because of the wind. It, it just takes it. Okay. So you are out at, say, a fire pretty much in the middle of nowhere, right? It's got to be national-like um, like land. Is Would that be correct? Well, it depends or- on which state you're in. Um, Montana is still pretty rural, as is Alaska. So most of the time we were remote. Um, we had to get there by air usually by a helicopter in a crew chopper or um, uh, or by road. You know, two summers ago, um, here on the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska, most of it was fire or road accessible because it was down on the Kenai. And mm-hmm. we saw the, you know, um, so that wasn't remote. California is a whole different cat. Um, down yeah. there, you have r- rural urban interface is the terminology they use. Where you have your city crews, county crews, and wildland crews, they're all working together, and they're all cross-trained in each other. So when you were doing the firefighter thing, it was just you. You know, it was your department, correct? It, it wasn't um, other departments working with you, or was it? Well, um, I was assigned to the Bureau of Land Management, Alaska Fire Service here in Alaska, mm-hmm. which is up in Fairbanks on Fort Wainwright. We share the um, military base with them. And um, that's where the crews are based out of. And now, I mean, things, a lot of things have changed since I did it. But now we have village crews. We have, oh gosh, in Alaska, we have something like 85, 90 village crews here that are trained. Okay, so so you're going to a fire. Say you're taking a helicopter, which would be cool. You're taking a helicopter to a fire. How big is the crew that you're on? And what kind of equipment are you going to be hauling around? So when you're going out to a fire, um, uh, we have the, it's a project fire is set up in departments. You have situations planning um, like you do on in any entity like mm-hmm. that. And so when you're flown out to a fire, if it's remote, then they cargo drop in everything. So we'd have our food boxes, cargo dropped, everything is dropped in and, um, that's all set up in the project-based camps, usually. Um, okay. And up here, uh, we have tundra. <laughs> so <laughs> what we would do is they drop in the steaks and potatoes, and we were like, yes, yeah, steaks and potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> and so we would dig a rectangular hole in the ground. I mean, it's horrible to do that to the tundra, but, you know, it was just small. And, um, and then we drop our – it was a refrigerator, you know, mm-hmm. really. And yeah. you drop it all in there to keep cold until – and then one of our crew was assigned to do the cooking. We took turns. So you trudge mm-hmm. back after walking five miles to the fire line, five miles back, and then you have to cook your dinner and everything. It's pretty rigorous. So what kind of like, walk us through a day. What would a day look like when you're out there in the field? What are you doing? And what kind of equipment is on your person? Like how much weight, like oh, yes. how much stuff? Um, well, you have your fire pack on you at all times. What's a um, fire pack? A fire pack is um, the pack that you prepare before you even head out to a fire, and it has everything in there. Um, your your um, you have your canteen, you have your fire shelter, of course. You have your um, your equipment is your Pulaski. What's a Pulaski? 
A Pulaski has a two-headed axe, pretty okay. much. It has a grub hoe on one side and an axe on the other. Okay. And the grub hoe part is for digging the fire line, and the axe is for chopping uh, mm. vegetation out of the way. Right. And um, in their fire pack, you have all your essentials, like your, you know, your personal effects and your change of clothes and whatnot, um, rain gear, Mm -hmm. um, anything you need in the out of doors to go on a backpacking trip. That's basically what's in your fire pack. You have to have, I always carried uh, moleskin for the blisters on my feet. Now they use a lot of different things, gels and things. But back then, you know, that's what we used. Blisters are real. I mean, oh, God. And yeah, you just, you know, you 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 carry your Pulaski with you. Um, some of the people have piss pumps, we call them. Uh, <laughs> bladders that you carry on your back that you squirt the flames out if you can oh. handle that. Okay. Some people have trashed their knees and backs doing that. I trash my knees. Lovely. So, yeah. Gotcha. So you would do that. So what time did your day start, your work day start? Well, usually um, in Alaska, we have the all-night twilight, so it would start around, oh, gee whiz, um, you'd hear the air traffic going by you all night long if you could sleep in your tent, and then um, along about oh, 5.30, you get up, you have to be ready to go by 6.30, and if you had to hike out a substantial length, then you had to get up earlier, like at 4, okay. um, we'd hike out maybe five miles to our site. Then what? Um, then you 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 get your fire briefing every morning. Mm-hmm. Um, your crew supervisor would attend the overall briefing at at uh, the situations um, tent, and then um, he'd come out and brief you on what our goal was, our objective was for that day. And if it's say we're on the left flank of a fire, then we're to dig line for thus and such distance, um, however wide, and they would just you know, and then we just set to work and do it. Um, if the fire runs off, which it has, um, and you have a runaway fire, such as what I experienced a while back, um, mm-hmm. then you, you do what you, you have to escape to your safety, um, safety zone. And okay. you, before you even go out on the line, everybody talks about safety's number one, and you have to designate sure. where your zone is and you and your crew boss are straight on how we are to, um, escape should that should that happen and obviously your escape is on foot right you just you just hightail it to uh (laughs) (laughs) so like what time was your work day done oh geez um sometimes we'd work um 10 hours is the norm sometimes we go 12 so yeah depending um but you in order to do that um, in order to stay in shape, to get away from a fire, you have to do this thing called a pack test at the very beginning of the year. Okay. Or we used to do the step test where you step up on a platform to a metronome and then they take yeah. your heart. And our, firefighter, our firefighters did that, actually. Yeah. Yep. yep. So pack test, um, you have light, medium, arduous. And then, um, of course, we had to do arduous. So you had to do your mile within 45 minutes and you're not allowed to to jog or run, you have to walk it. Oh, as okay. As fast as you can with weight. You have to okay. carry. About how much do you remember how much weight was like on your back when you were um humping it out to a fire? Oh gosh. Forty five pounds average. Okay. Yeah, the guys, um I'm like K I'm I'm five foot two, so I had to, you know, be careful of the weight. 
Um, Some of the guys that I work with, you know, the six footers on up, you know, they're carrying 50, 60 pounds. Smoke jumpers carry 85. There's just no way I could do that. Okay. Now, Kay, with you, with um, being on the fire department, what was your day like? You know, what time did it start? Did you work 24-hour shifts or why did you work? Sure. So um, with the way, so... Yes, you can trade to make it work so that you're working 24 hours, essentially, mm-hmm. um, versus working smaller smaller stints. So most people prefer to be on call 24 hours. Um, and there's a lot of waiting. I think that's the, oh, yeah. the unglamorous part. I'm sure you know being a police officer is a little oh, yeah. different to you. But um, there's a lot of waiting. And I know cops and firemen always, always joke around about that, too. Oh, you're one, sitting around doing nothing. One of my um, best, one of my best friends is a retired lieutenant from one of the suburbs outside of Milwaukee. We've been friends since like college, and oh, I would just give him so much grief. I was like, "So, how's the basketball today? You yeah. know, they, they're, they're, they're uh, who made the popcorn? You know, what's on TV tonight? You know, et cetera, et cetera." So, I, I am familiar with that. Yeah, we had some cops that would hang out in our firehouse too and watch the big screen and then grumble when they got called out or something. So I feel that. <laughs> Um, so there is, there's lots of waiting, but then you have to constantly be ready to be on though. So, um, you have to, you know, be ready to go whenever. So it's not like you can be in the middle of, of something like that. You're not going to be able to stop, you know? So you have to just constantly be ready and you do work on, on timing and how quickly you get dressed and how quickly you get on the rig and all of that. So, so when you were geared up to, um, go to a call, what kind of, Mm -hmm. what kind of equipment would you be carrying? So it depends. So my department's a little different because we did everything engine and truck operations. Okay. A lot of departments and I write FDNY. So I know mm-hmm. a lot of people do. So I'll kind of talk to that a bit as well. Um, but FDNY it's separate where it's engine or truck and there's different operations that each do. Mm-hmm. So in my department, you had to be prepared to do both. So engine operations is putting the, the wet stuff on the red stuff, you know, it's putting out the fire. So <laughs> okay. it's um, hose line operation and you're actually doing that itself versus truck operations, which is what I preferred, mm-hmm. would go in and do search and rescue for uh, victims, but also for the fire too. I think that's one thing that TV gets wrong is you can't see the fire half of the time. It is dark. It's all it smoke. is smoky. Yeah. Yep. And you don't, you could literally be standing on it before you realize that it's there. So a lot of truck operations do that as well. And so you do your primary search, you look for the fire for signs of life um, and you do overhaul at the end, which is fancy way of saying breaking stuff to make sure the fire is actually gone. So you don't have to get, go get called back an hour later and get right for that one. Yep. Um, and ventilation as well. So roof ventilation um, mm-hmm. and then also windows, doors, that kind of thing. So that depends on, on what your, what your function is for, for that particular call. Um, but all, all interior firefighters have the gear. So you've got the, the boots, the bunker pants, the, the coats, you have a hood, um, which is something that covers 
forget people can't see me from uh, it covers your <laughs> neck and over your head too. Okay. So it's um, it covers like the rest of the exposed skin. And that's something that's fairly newer in firefighting. I want to say since like the nineties, that's really started to come more mm-hmm. into effect. It used to just be a flap that was on the back of the helmet that came down, but they've linked a lot of cancer cases to the oh. smoke exposure. So the okay. hood just is an extra layer of protection mm-hmm. and then a helmet. And then you also wear an SCBA, um, which is a pack that you're on your back that carries your air tank, non oxygen tank authors. It is not your oxygen. It is breathing air. So it's air <laughs> tank um, with your mask. So that's what you have for every, every call. And then it depends on what your job is. So if you're on the engine, then you're either going to be the nozzle man, the backup, um, you're going to be on the hydrant so that you don't really have extra gear that you carry other than the hose right. on the truck company. You're going to have different tools. So mm-hmm. if you are the can man, you usually take the, the fire extinguisher and a six foot pipe pole, which helps to tear down ceilings, break up the walls, right. look for fire. Um, you can be the irons man, which is the coveted job on the truck that you get a, a set of irons, which is an axe and a halligan. A halligan okay. is like a, a metal bar has two ends to it. One is like a curved fork end. The other is yep. adds end, which is like L shape. It's got like a point and a flat head to it. So you carry those. Um, the officer usually takes a thermal imaging camera, which is basically going to help you see the fire and also right. look for people. Um, if you're doing, if you're roof operations, you've got a saw, you're going up to the roof. So you usually got a saw and a, a pipe pole to help with that. So it really depends on what position you're in, in terms of what tools you take in with you. Right. And also if it's going to be a rescue or just a medical call. For sure. Did you guys mm-hmm. just, did, were you the first responders for medical calls or how did that work in your uh, municipality? We were. Yeah. So in our, in our town, so, and this is what I'm saying, Long Island's a little different because each town has its own mm-hmm. department, even though they work together. So what I'm saying, like mine's small, but you do work together. Um, so we didn't have an ambulance in our department, but on the other side of town they had an ambulance so we were always the first responders for medical calls in okay. my area we have to wait for the ambulance to come yeah in. you, so we did you would medical calls. yeah you would call like like where i worked the fire department was usually the first responders for a medical call and then they would triage it as far as okay we need paramedics for this because all of our fighters were basic yeah. emts and mm-hmm. you know it's like okay you know this guy is having a heart attack get me a paramedic or he's having sure. like, you know a diabetic situation or you know or some type of trauma they would automatically send paramedics along with the firefighters you know that mm-hmm. kind of thing so that's Very not similar with us. yeah that's not unusual but when you have the the bottle on your back that's with all that other stuff that's a good 25 30 pounds i would imagine at least, yeah. I think the yeah. gear alone is 45 to 50 pounds, just the gear okay. itself. Um, and then you start adding adding tools and all that. It could be up to 75 pounds additional. Damn. Yeah. I I took the test for uh, the city of Madison's fire department when I just got out of college. Mm-hmm. And I took the PT test and they made you wear, you know, the bunker gear and you had the bottle, but you didn't have the mask you know, doing all the fun stuff. And mm-hmm. I thought it was cool. I, I enjoyed doing it, but I was just like, man, it was August and it was super hot. Oh, outside. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> then doing that around a fire, you know, that's one thing people don't realize. And this for the authors out there that, you know, they cycled the people in and out, be, the firefighters, because, you know, duh, fire is hot, but boy, yeah. you don't realize how hot it is until you're like mm-hmm. right by one, you know, imagine your fire pit on like, quadruple steroids and that's that yeah. it gets close and like you were saying before the smoke is unbelievable mm-hmm. you know 
you can't i was at a fire one time where i was outside and the smoke was so bad i couldn't see my hand in front of my face you can't it's so true and honestly i used to when i was crawling through i would i would typically close my eyes because it would heighten my senses my other senses um mm. so i would typically even close my eyes in some of the bad ones because you're you're really not seeing something anyway no, um not. but when you train too they they train you there are like blackouts that go over your mask so you actually can't oh. see anything when you're training so you do learn to rely on your other senses fire truthfully you can hear better than you can see you hear the yes. crackling um and so that's the other thing when you're wearing your mask like they teach you to take a second to hold your breath and really listen so that you you have right. you have that sense activated um but then again like feel a lot of it's through feel so when you search a room you use your tools they say not to not to let your your hand or your foot leave the wall at any point that's how you get lost so you right. use your tools to kind of sweep through the room and you use your senses to try and figure out what this feels like. Okay. That's mm -hmm. a radiator. And then this is a bed. Okay. That tells me I'm in a bedroom. So make sure you look under it. Make sure you look for the closet. Cause you know, there's going to be a closet. Yeah. Um, so that, that kind of stuff, it really teaches you to use your other senses. Yeah. Most of the firefighters had a, um, a smaller flashlight on their helmets. And then mm -hmm. a lot of them had the flashlight that were kind of like slung over their shoulder, you know, in yeah. front of them, you know, kind of like a, a lamp or whatever you'd want to call it. So mm -hmm. you have more some, of a high beam. Yeah. Yeah. So you have that now, Lolo. Yeah. I forgot to ask you, what did your mom and dad think about you wanting to jump out and become a wildland firefighter? Where did that come from? Well, I was a chicken most of my life. I mean, my dad passed away when I was seven and I, I don't know. Okay. I just became, you know, everybody used to call me a scaredy cat. So I kind of grew <laughs> up under that moniker. And then um, you showed them. <laughs> 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 I got into competitive swimming. So I was swimmer, diver, synchronized swimming is where you, you learn. did. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like Pilates in the water, but you have, yeah. to, you have to hold your breath. I think a lot of that training I had um, doing that prepared me for firefighting. I didn't know it at the time, but it really right. did. Um, so it got my muscles developed and whatnot. But mm -hmm. yeah, my mom, um, she, she, you know, I didn't really tell her until I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got back from the first fire. No way, really? Oh God. <laughs> that you know, is funny. In case I, you know, croaked or something, I don't know. I didn't, you know, I didn't want her to, to freak out. But once she knew that I went, I did it and I could do it and I was capable of doing it. Um, but the first thing out of her mouth was, well, how can you do that with all those men out there? <laughs> that sounds so, like my mom. <laughs> well... You know, the thing is, though, what I learned out there, um, and we I was with a mature group, half of us were married, the guys were really awesome. I mean, yeah, they stand there with folded arms, and they look at you at first, like, oh, is she going to be able to do this, you know, and they watch and then you prove yourself. And it's like case that, you know, you have to really, as a female, you do have to kind of go over and beyond to prove. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not an automatic acceptance thing. And once right. you do that and you gain their respect, you know, then people are like, hey, Simonson, can I help you carry that today? Or do you really want to carry that chainsaw up that 10% slope or, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. And I'd always say, no, thank you. But thank you for asking. I mean, you know, you kind of want to carry your own. Right. So, now, <laughs> did you have any relatives that were firefighters? You know, like, hey, he's a third generation. Nobody. No. So this no. is just something you were in college. Did you, uh, did you graduate from college? Yes. I got a forestry degree from the university. Oh. Montana. Okay. So, so 
that's yeah. you know that's that's in the same wheelhouse, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, fire science is a large part of the curriculum, and a lot of people go on to get their fire science um, masters and doctorates and such. So and maybe it wasn't a total shock to your mom because I mean you were going to school for it, kind of. Yeah. Did you yeah. have any brothers or sisters? Uh, yes, but none of them were. They were teachers mostly. Okay. And, uh, real estate agents. Nobody did the fire thing. Everybody left Montana. I was kind of the last holdout. They all scattered. Okay. Now you were saying you were married when you were a firefighter, correct? Um, in Montana, I was not. Um, okay. And that's where the romance came from. Oh, boy. The husband was on a fire crew. So. Oh, that's where you met your hobby. And so up here in Alaska, though, we were married by then. And so that's where we had a more mature group up here. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, it kind of took a lot of the pressure off, too, because, you know, you didn't have to worry about people hitting on you on your crew. Except one time this guy came, a new guy came up to me and he was doing that. And one of the um, one of my married friends came up and he, he kind of leans into the guy and he says, well, you know, she has that wedding ring on, bro. So. <laughs> You know, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, thank you, Kevin. That was so nice of you. (laughs) Very nice. All right. So, you know, we were talking about equipment before, you know, you you explained what you had, but you would also, I would assume, wear some type of helmet and eye protection. Yes. I forgot to talk about the Nomex. Um, Nomex. Um, You are issued green Nomex trousers and a yellow Nomex shirt. As part of, and then you, yes, you have your helmet, um, your hard hat mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have, and if you need it, a respirator for those that, but I must caveat that with saying that um, the U.S. Forest Service requires a pulmonary function test now before you go out on fire because they'd have incidences of people with asthma and such that would oh. get in and then that would compromise things when, when when you're in a dangerous situation. So yeah, no mix. Yeah. Um, and then they give okay. you the rain gear because uh, mm-hmm. you're always in the heat. You're always outside. Right. In the, yeah. Now I, for both of you guys, I was surprised. And this was mostly in the big city, not in like the suburbs that the firefighters, a lot of them were smokers. They're smoking cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> it, did, did you guys see that a lot or is it? Yeah. Yeah, with the older generations. Yeah, yeah. I was like, um, you just got out of a fire. You're literally, your skin is just charred black, you know, from Mm -hmm. the smoke. And one of the first things they do is fire up a cigarette. It's so true. Yeah, (laughs) I was always like, uh, okay. And when I go to the firehouse to, you know, whatever, you know, sometimes I have to do follow up, you know, if there was like a dead body or um, an overdose mm-hmm. or, you know, one of the medical things or even a fire just trying to get, you know, who was in charge and, you know, who called the fire department, et cetera, et cetera. And you go in there and half the guys were puffing away on cigarettes. And I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. all right. You don't get enough smoke at the fire. Now you want some more, you know, so we didn't have, I think that. a lot of that has changed. Yeah. But we didn't because um, fire, out, outdoor firefighting, you know, wildland, you, it attracts a lot of outdoor enthusiasts to begin mm-hmm. with. So you, you've got your REI people and, <laughs> you know, your outside magazine people, and they, they kind of gravitate towards that. So I don't know, their fitness. 
Oh, okay. People anyway, so I didn't sense. see that much. There was just one guy I saw. He was an older guy, and he was from the Bronx, and you know, he was sure. funny. <laughs> that there. Well, the, the big city guys, like when I joined, you know, it was over 26 years ago. A lot of the firefighters that would go up on the roofs of these places to ventilate wouldn't bring an air bottle. They wouldn't wear an air right. bottle because they were afraid of falling and falling on their air bottle. Is that something that you would see, Kay? Not anymore. It's required. You have to. But that right. is something I've heard of. And I mean, like my dad's been in the department for what feels like forever now. But yeah. um so he's talked about, you know, like those weren't even common. It was, it was, you were lucky to get one of those when you, when he was wow. first on, you know? So um, I think that's why like with your saying with, with cigarettes and stuff is mm-hmm. that was just it, the knowledge and the education piece wasn't out there as much as it is now. But I, I think you do have to kind of to go back to that a little bit. It, it's a device, right. And when you're in a high pressure, high stress job, right. like, Police and firemen, you you do have those vices to cope with some of the things that you have to deal with. So oh, yeah. I think that's why you see prevalence of alcoholism and you see people that immediately light up the cigarette. But I do think that that's that has changed a little bit more as we've we've learned more about health and, and wellness. Yeah, and it's it seemed at least they were more open about it in a big city mm-hmm. compared to the suburbs. The suburbs always had better equipment, nicer yeah. trucks, and absolutely the firefighters had a stricter rules as far as you, you can play basketball, but don't play basketball in front of the house where the public could see you doing it. Cause they think, Oh, great. You know, all they do is just sit around and play basketball all day or, you know, that kind of thing, you know, do that kind of thing out of the public eye, that, that sure. sort of thing. Now, what kind of things am I missing? Or do you think people would as far as writers go, would get something out of like the culture in a firehouse, some of the slang maybe, or some of the culture, the day-to-day just like stuff. Why don't you it's a lot that? of ball breaking. So that's the same thing of the police department. Yeah. You can't yeah. have a thin skin. You got to have a thick skin. You can't, you can't. And if they're not making fun of you, then there's a problem because you're not fitting in. Like that's, you want to be able to have your, have your balls broken because that means that they're, they're trying to get to know you, but that's, that's another coping mechanism for some of the things that, mm-hmm. that you go through too, is to be able to, to thicken that skin because you really do need a thick skin to, to do jobs, do jobs like these. So right. I think that's, that's very common is to, to see the ball breaking going on in a firehouse. It's the same thing with the police department. And like mm-hmm. you said, if they're not breaking your balls then they don't like you or they don't trust yep. you. And mm-hmm. the thing about it, it's a very unique situation because you're literally putting your life in somebody else's hands. Not many yeah. other jobs are out there except maybe the military. But other than that, I, I can't think of much where I'm going to work today. And one of you guys, you know, I have to count on you to, you know, watch my mm-hmm. six, watch my back, you know, yep. or we're going to go in together and we're going to go take care of business, you know, and it, <laughs> That's something that, you know, I'm not going to get into politics or anything like that, but the mainstream media and just, just the general public doesn't understand and they can't fathom Mm -hmm. how that feels. And like you said, you know, there's gallows humor, there's, there's ball busting, there's all kinds of stuff to the naked eye. Somebody who isn't associated with this. Oh my gosh, that's terrible that, you know, he or she is saying that. And it's like, no, that's that's just another day at the office, you know, <laughs> and it's fun. Sure. It's fun. Mm-hmm. How about you, Lolo? Oh, yes. Yes. I can totally relate to that. Well, 
when you're, <clears throat> excuse me, when you're living and working together with 18 people, you have a tendency to get to know each other pretty well. Mm-hmm. And especially in the training um, uh, phase, you're, you're, when you work together and you're out in the field practicing your fire line or whatever you're doing or, or practicing, you know, uh, going to your safety zone, mm-hmm. you get to know your crew and you get to know their personalities, you know, and their strengths and their weaknesses. But the biggest thing of all is you learn to develop trust in every single one of those crew, because sure. you never know if you you know, your life is in their hands at any given point. I mean, um, you, you just never know what can happen out there. So that trust is, is critical to have, right. You can't have, um, disgruntled people. It won't work. I've seen it. It just, they mm-hmm. just, they're gone. They just, they, they, you know, they're not tolerated. Right. Um, Cause it can compromise your whole crew when you can't afford that. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. All right. Now you guys have had other careers. Now, both of you have been involved in movies. Am I correct on saying that? <laughs> yeah. Not I, so I, much I, you, but yeah. Okay. Well, Go I ahead, Lola. No, I just did it by default. Um, I was in uh, stage acting, community theater, you know, mm-hmm. for like 30 years here in Anchorage. And uh, and uh, so when we got our film tax incentive by the Alaska legislature, the, uh, Hollywood came up here and they did for about five years. They did six major motion pictures. And mm-hmm. I I uh, auditioned and I got in as, in as an extra. And so I worked. So what movies were you in? Oh, the frozen ground. I have an IMDb page. <laughs> oh, look at you. <laughs> anyway, you know, it's skimpy, but what the heck? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, the frozen ground with Nicolas Cage and John Cusack. That was the story about a serial killer we had here, um, Robert Hansen in Anchorage back in the early 80s. Okay. Um, it's also in Mind Hunter, which I listened to recently. Sure. Um, and then Big Miracle is a story about uh, freeing the whales up in the Arctic back in the 80s that we had a situation where all these people and countries in Russia and the U.S. and everybody collaborated to free the whales. Um, then there's um, a ghost, which was with uh, uh, John Voight. And I, that was I thought about, you were going to say Patrick Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, no. <laughs> Demi Moore. Oh, <laughs> Scene. I was just gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no such luck. <laughs> it was in the dead of winter. They threw me in a parka, and I had to walk around searching for a body while they filmed us from the helicopter. Okay. <laughs> but you know, they fed us lobster and stuff. For wow, you can't go wrong with that. Series, so that was pretty cool. Dang. And then I got to stare at Dermot Mulroney's butt while. He in a one scene, you know, and, and it was filmed in the eighties and I had my camera like this and the guy, the props guy walks up to me and he goes, don't you remember how we took pictures in the eighties? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And he goes, we didn't hold our phones out like this. We held them up to our eyes, our face. Remember that? And I'm like, oh yeah. And he goes, we shoot the scene. Glare at me and I'm like, ugh. <laughs> so you, you were also in a i think it was a youtube video it was it was an independent movie you had a like a talking part yes um a local filmmaker here in alaska yeah. uh, michael burns and and uh and dean mitchell or my yeah dean mitchell um yeah we did a local movie it was about a alcoholic 
making good on his promises to apologize to everybody when he was drunk. It's kind of a black comedy. Okay. Binge. It's on Amazon. And yeah, that was, I had, what was that called again? Proper binge. Proper binge. And what was your uh, role? I was the mother of the alcoholics. Were you an alcoholic too? No, not in the movie. Well, oh, and not in real uh, life. Well, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> not judging. Uh, I am Irish, so you know. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, oh. Kay, how about you? What, were you ever behind the silver screen? Um, I did. I did have a theater background. I did do theater, and then my my best friend got her big break, and I saw what that was all about. And I was like, I don't want that, that life. So I, I kind of abandoned that. And okay. Ended up getting my degree in English, of all things, and I actually taught college English for a while, and okay. then I became an entrepreneur, and I started like eight businesses. So what, what kind of businesses? Um, mostly in the health and wellness field. Okay. So I had. I actually, after I got out of the department, um, I had heart surgery. And oh, so, nice. yeah, so that kind of set me down a whole, a whole new road of oh, holistic yeah. healing. So I, um, I started several different, different health and wellness businesses and I've, I've owned a non-alcoholic bar, which everyone laughs at like you, I'm like 60% Irish, I'm Irish and Filipino. So, um, <laughs> so that was funny. I bartended for real for like 10 years. So I was okay. like, wait, you own a non-alcoholic bar? <laughs> um, so that's interesting, but yeah, so now I'd say, I'd say my primary background now is in business as a, a CEO and an entrepreneur. Okay. Very cool. All right. So did you think that any of your like theater or movie background helped at all with your writing careers? A hundred percent. And in which way? Well, as writers, you have to, you have to be able to tap into emotions and you do the same thing as actors and actresses. You have to be able to go into those emotions. And like I was trained with like method acting, you know, so it's, it really is about, about being able to turn those emotions on at the, the turn the snap of your fingers you know so um I think that that certainly helps with with writing and I think too I write I write firefighters so you're I'm already writing um high stakes emotion Mm -hmm. that's innately built into that job whether regardless of where you're going to send your plot you're writing about something that's already going to be high stakes emotions so I think that definitely helps to be able to get more into those characters as a writer too how about you Lola I agree totally. Um, I took a class method acting for or method writing for writers and that mm-hmm. and that, you know, in the same vein where you learn to tap into that emotion as a actor. But one of the things that I um, the last show I did was Steel Magnolias and I had my dream role of Clary. That was like my my I just love that role. And after that, um, I was struggling to learn my lines and things. And not only that, but I wanted to write the lines. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was saying lines of other fantastic writers, Neil Simon and people like that. I wanted to do that. I wanted, I wanted to see the look on an actor's face when they said something I wrote and that happened. I -hmm. wrote two plays and they were entered in the Valdez theater conference and they were staged um, readings. And I can't begin to describe the feeling of what that's like to, to see what an actor will, will, how they create your character and inject the emotion and say the words that you wrote. It it was just the most humbling experience I think that I've ever had. Wow. That's great. Now, both of you are authors, you're writers. Kay, you have probably a few more books out than Lolo right now. Lolo's at the beginning of her 
journey of this journey you've had a lot of journeys but this this journey now okay how long have you been writing um writing or pub- so i've been publishing since actually august of 2020 so i oh, okay. i'm pretty new too um but oh, okay. i i rapid i rapid release and i write very quickly so i have um i have eight books out out now so oh, since, I do write since 20 how long since are these august, books yeah. how many words are the books um, about 80,000 to 100,000 words full novels. Dang. Yeah, you are you're cranking out the yeah, material. There's quick. no wow, good for you. Um I usually ask and I was going to do this later but I'll do it now. I usually ask a, a little bit of a lightning round as far as you know how you do what you do. Do you dictate or do you like hand type your uh books, your manuscripts? I type. I can't dictate. I wish I could. That would that would save me so much time, but I right. I just can't get the hang of it. Okay. Are you a plotter or are you a pantser? Both. I okay. say You're I started a as a pantser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I started as a pantser. And then when I really wanted to get into speed, I had to start plotting. So mm-hmm. that's that's how I've been able to because I can I can crank out a first draft in seven to ten days, but the only way I can do that is by having an outline beforehand. Even though I usually get halfway through and decide something wants to change and it changes the entire outline, but at least right. it gives me somewhere to jump off from. Are you an independent author? Or do I you, am. Okay. Do you have any inclination to you know try to get an agent and go down that road, or are you just strictly indie all the way? Both, sort of. So I've, I've wanted to be an author my entire life. I've always loved books. And like I said, I was an only child. So I've always lived okay. in my imagination. So that's always mm-hmm. been a goal of mine. Um, I always thought I had to do it traditionally. And I remember being a teenager and scrolling, looking through those books, like those actual print books of age right. events. I grew up in New York, you know, <laughs> so all that. Um, but then once I got into, into business, and mm-hmm. I really learned marketing and all of that. And I got more into, I got introduced to the indie publishing world. And I realized with my background, I could do that and be more profitable off the jump from it because I have this, that skill set. But I do intend to publish traditionally as well. Okay. And like we were talking about the movie industry, I know Lolo and I have talked about this is doing those, those adaptations for screen. So mm-hmm. that definitely is something that we'd pursue or okay. I'd pursue more from the traditional route. So are you a Kindle Unlimited or wide person? Currently, I'm Kindle Unlimited. I'm okay. wondering about changing that, but at the at this point, I am Kindle Unlimited. Yeah, it, it's hard to change if you're getting a lot of page reads. Boy, that's, I mean, there's pros and cons to it. You know, the there's the the mindset of you don't want all your eggs in one basket, but boy, you know, and Amazon can change the structure of, you know, you know, royalties any anytime they want to, but mm-hmm. it is nice to have all of those page reads and get paid for that. So that's that that is very, very nice to have. Um absolutely. And that's that's kind of so in my first six months of publishing, I ended up with a million page reads. And so I was wow. like, that's it, Kindle Unlimited all the way. Like this is where I need to be. And then that's kind of come to a halt a little bit in the last few months and my sales have been going up more. So I'm thinking about about going going wide, but it's a constant change. And and like you said, it's it's great to have that power of Amazon, but at the same time you are at their mercy with what they yeah. decide they want to do with it. Double-edged sword, no doubt about it. Lolo, how mm-hmm. about you? Oh, well, um, I started out, um, I tried traditional. You know, I was querying and mm-hmm. such. And then I had uh, Kensington asked for it, Harper Collins asked for it, Entangled, Karina. 
and I sent it off, but then COVID hit and I, I'd hear back from some and not the others. I just felt pressure once that happened. Mm-hmm. You know? So I thought, you know what? I talked to Craig Martell up there in Fairbanks and he said, why don't you come to 20 books Vegas? So I did. And that <laughs> kind of made the difference for me. And that's cool. where I met you. Right? I know you, you were there yeah. at uh, the yeah. law enforcement panel as well. Yes. And so, um, yeah, I came back to Alaska and I, I wrote the book and got it out there and, um, wrote the next one. I'm not as fast as Kay though. I, it takes me, I, I timed the second book. I'm getting faster, but the second one took, that was a good six months, just three months draft, three months, um, to revise and edit. But that also takes in the lag time, mm-hmm. you know, waiting and waiting for stuff. Right. So. Do you dictate or do you just plunk away on the computer? I plunk away. And then, you know, Mark Cameron was saying how he, um, cause I, I, I like to be outside and I can't see my monitor with the sun. Mm. And so mm-hmm. Cameron goes, well, why don't you just get a tablet and write, you know, with a pen and yeah. he writes with a pencil. And so I do that sometimes when I'm right. outside or right on my phone or whatever, but yeah, plunking. Are you a plot, plotter or a pl- pantser or a planter? Um, definite plotter. Um, okay. Yeah, um, my husband and I will will figure out a plot on our five hour drive between Eagle River and Homer. Oh, there you go. There <laughs> yeah. you go. Okay, what will the next book be about? <laughs> How about you? Are you KU or wide? Um, KU for now, but I plan to go wide. I, I entered KU only because it was easy peasy and I wanted sure. something automatic and the KDP countdowns. And like Kay said, the page reads, oh my gosh, the page reads are amazing when you have a 100K book, which is what mine are. Yeah. So, so you, leave. you you write primarily uh, romance. What are the two books that you have out right now? Um, they're called Alaska Spark and Alaska Inferno. And mm-hmm. I call it the Blazing Hearts Wildfire series. Okay. Yeah. All right. How about you? How about you, Kay? What are you writing right now? So my, my firefighter series is Burning for the Bravest. And that is a seven book series plus a Christmas book that's out. And a novella as well that's out in that series. And then I'm actually starting a spinoff series that's law enforcement. So that's coming out in cool. August. Very so, good. Yeah. So I've been awesome. reading cops and writers religiously. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's good to know. That's good to know. Absolutely. What are, what are you guys doing for marketing? What's What do you think is working the best for you guys? Uh, well, for me, it's the newsletter promos. Once I tapped into that, I mean, every time I do a KDP countdown, whether it's free or 99 cents, you know, I get the fussy librarian and the um, mm-hmm. e-reader news today and all those. And I yeah. stack them and I learned, I listened to David Gowran a lot in his, sure. um, yeah. And he recommends, okay, spread them out over the five days. So I, when I started doing that, I started seeing the consistent downloads mm-hmm. and then the tail would last longer at the end. So okay. I hit the tail really hard. Now I'll put maybe two or three on the tail. Okay. How about you, Kay? I have to agree. That's been really successful for me too. Um, the the paid newsletters. I did a, a free book promotion back in November that got like nine thousand downloads in two days, and then I had a lot of read through my backlist from that. So that was definitely very helpful for me. The other thing I'd say is the the author newsletter swaps, which are free. Mm-hmm. Um, I send my newsletter out twice a week, so I actually oh, wow. can build up 
yeah. So I can build up and that was not intentional. That's just kind of how I started, but now yeah. my readers have gotten used to it and I haven't seen any decrease in my open or click rate. So I'm kind of just letting it fly. Um, but so that's given me a lot of opportunities for swaps. So that okay. has been, has been big too. I'm very discriminating about who I'll swap with and what genre. So the whole also mm-hmm. bought algorithm and whatnot. Um, right. but that's been great. And then the other thing that I do. So every time I release a book, I give away five ebooks by other authors. Um, oh, so one is my I never heard of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then so one mining release, the other four are books by other authors, and I'll choose a theme. So my um my last one, I gave away Lolo's book because it was the last one in this firefighter series for now. So I did firefighter books. So mm-hmm. I picked hers and I picked out three other authors. And then I just reach out to the authors and I say, hey, I'm doing this new release. Do you yeah. mind sharing? And so then they'll share it with the readers. Sometimes they'll invite me into their Facebook groups. So that's been a huge thing. And it only cost me like 20, 25 bucks to buy all of those books. So that's been, that's been amazing. I appreciate you doing that. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> always happy to. Now, as far as giving away the other author's books, how are you, are you just, how are you exactly doing that through a book funnel link or how are you doing that? I buy them off Amazon and then I just send really? them as gifts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. when you do your law enforcement one, I'd be happy to do that with the first book in my cops and writers series. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Yeah. I, be totally down with that you know do you have book funnel do you use book funnel i do i do okay. but I'm, i don't have like a i don't have a full book freebie i do samples of oh, my okay. existing books just because and i'm in ku i just haven't with okay. my writing schedule i haven't had time to write a freebie so <laughs> I, and i haven't really needed it at this point so right. um i don't really have a, a freebie that i do unless i schedule it through are either of you in patreon or anything like that not yet but I, I was just going to say, Patrick, um, and thanks to you, thank you um, for the referral to the Mark Dawson self-publishing show. I was just going to say, when you do podcasts such as this one and others like like Mark's and James Blatch, um, those have a domino effect, I they found. Do. And so after that, I was contacted by several local people and some mm-hmm. online for more interviews and more podcasts. And one of them was here in Alaska. He goes, Oh my gosh, I'm tuning in and I see this Alaskan on, <laughs> on the, in the show in the UK, you know, right. So he called and, and, um, and when I appeared on his show, then all these bookstores in Alaska called and wanted the book. So. Yeah. I, I was on uh, Mark and James's podcast twice. I've been on a bunch and I think that moves the needle it's not going to be tremendous. And, you know, way I did it was I cut my teeth on some smaller ones that weren't as big, you know, they didn't have quite the, uh, the listenership. And I, I, I bought the book that Joanna Penn wrote It's audio for authors. And she's mm-hmm. got a couple of um, chapters in there about podcasts. So if you want to start a podcast or if you want to be a guest on a podcast, she has really good advice. And, you know, she has a couple of sample um, emails that people sent to her asking to be on her show, you know, people pitching themselves and she has the right way and the wrong way to do it. Mm. So, you know, it's, yeah. So I found that to be very interesting and I wound up on her show as well. And that did move the needle. You know, once you get on some of the bigger ones, it does help, but both of you guys are in a very, you're in a genre because would it just be considered romance or hot romance or what would you call your genres? 
contemporary romance, steamy contemporary romance. Steamy con- yeah. Okay. Now, I kind of tiptoed over into suspense, but I, yeah, I don't know. I that's a really competitive subgenre, and it's really hard to get any kind of a ranking. Okay, there. those genres are very popular. There's very voracious readers for those yeah. genres, but the flip side of that coin is it's very competitive. Don't mm-hmm. you? Don't you guys think there's a lot of writers out there that are there's a lot of books and a lot of writers that are writing those books. That's true. Yes. I read that um, a year ago in May was the uh, was the uh, largest volume of uh, indie ebook publishing ever, and mm. it only accelerated in the last two months um, here, May and June of okay. this year. So wow. yeah, there's more and more and more books in it sure. in the market. So, what books do you guys read? Primarily romance because I write in romance, okay. um, but I also love mystery thrillers and some some. Um, memoir okay how about you lola i'm pretty much the same i like romantic suspense um i like a crime in there or some kind of a suspenseful element and i i read um i read uh oh gosh all over in everything um Mm -hmm. um, thrillers um you name it i'm reading Kristen, hannah all kinds of things yeah i'm all over the place too I don't read many romance, so I haven't read your book. Sorry. Uh, what's some of the best and worst advice that has been given to you as a writer? Go ahead, Kay. <laughs> as a writer. Okay. Um, so the, the Or as a firefighter, advice. if you want, that's fine, too. That's fine, okay. too. Okay. So as the best advice I've received as a writer, so I'm a perfectionist, and I've been writing since I was a kid, but I always struggled with finishing full length works like novel length works because I would constantly go back and reread what I wrote and edit and then go back and reread what I wrote. So I'd never be able to get to the end. So the best advice I've gotten as a writer is to get the words down and don't edit it as you write. And the second I got out of my own way, I'm clearly able to breeze through getting the words down on the page mm. as soon as I learned that from a another since if you are indie published, I'll kind of wear that CEO hat for a minute. My best advice that I always give to business owners is to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think that really goes, <laughs> yeah. that extends really well through the the author and publishing business too. And if it's all about taking risks and you have to be comfortable with, with doing that. Right. Once you're, you learn, you learn to thrive when your feet are to the fire. Absolutely. Uh, um, I think that's, that's important in mm-hmm. terms of the worst. Um, I'm going to let Lolo tell her best ones. And then get uh-huh. back to me on yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, the thing that I think the biggest thing I've learned up through now is to trust my gut instinct. When I first sure. started out, I was handing off I was deferring to everybody else. So they know more than me. They know better than I do, you know? And so my story was just all over the place. And mm-hmm. when the the thing that woke me up was an aha moment when um, I was pitching to a Harper Collins acquisition editor at, at the LA conference I attended. And um, she goes, well, you know, I think you need to take out most of the fire scenes in here because romance readers will be bored to death. It's not a firefighting manual. And I just kind of sat back and I went, no, because that'll take away my male point of view. And I just. It's a big part of your story. Yeah. So trust your gut instinct. Mm -hmm. Don't hand. Don't think that everybody else knows better than you. That's the biggest thing. The other thing is don't give up. Do not give up. Failure is not an option. It just isn't. Mm -hmm. 
keep with it. I mean, I wanted to give up every 10 minutes. You know, <laughs> I didn't. Um, okay. You gotta, you gotta, community is everything. That's the other thing I've learned is, you know, you really have to get out and, and no other writers. You know, I, I start right. out online and then I try to meet people in person. Like I can't wait to meet Kay in Vegas, you know, and I know <laughs> no, we met online and you know, I met somebody online and wound up in Ireland singing a song in a church south of Dublin. <laughs> and that was all because of writing. Okay. I That's mean, cool. Yeah. The yeah. worst advice, I think, is listening to too many people and okay. um, telling me that I had to do something a specific way. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to get on TikTok. You're missing out if you're not on TikTok or You've got to really get on Instagram. You've got to do the bookstagram thing or whatever it might be. And I'm just a person that can only do the one thing at a time. I'm not, I used to multitask really well, but anymore, I just, I can't. Okay. You know? So I, I, I want to just slow down and remember why I did this in the first place for sure. fun and all of that. And I want to relax with it now. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That's a good point. I, so when I first started this, I've always loved to write. I've always loved to read. It's like my therapy. And so when I first started this, I made a promise to myself that if it ever felt like something I had to do versus something I wanted to do that I was out. So like you're saying, that's, that's something that I've, I've said for myself, but you reminded me of something. And since I've been per- given permission to go wherever I want on this show, you I'm going to tell you the story. So I, in one of my books, and Lolo, you read this one, so you can you can actually vouch to this one. But uh, I put a scene that was based off of an actual an actual call that mm-hmm. I went on, and my editor and several of my advanced readers freaked out and were like, you can't put this in there. And I left it and I'm glad I did. But the scene was they get called to a medical emergency Mm -hmm. and it's this woman who is having intercourse with her dog and the dog is stuck. And I saw this, this happened in real life. The dog is stuck and they have to, because I I mean, author Google histories, right? Why does a dog get stuck? So the way that it works is that that's anatomy. It's supposed to happen when dogs are mating. They're supposed to get stuck for like 20 minutes. And so I put that in because it's a very heavy book. So there's a lot of like heavy emotional stuff going on. So I put that in a little bit more lighthearted. But it's also the fifth book in my series. So my readers, by the time they've gotten there, have learned that I put things in that might might surprise you. And so I... And I kept it in against everybody, say other authors, like, you can't do that. You're going to get so slammed in your reviews. I can't tell you how many of my readers reached out to me and were like, oh my God, was that real? Because I love to find the little Easter eggs of what was real in my books and what I actually made up. So everybody reached out. I was like, Is that ha- did that really happen? I can't believe it. So you know, I was like, lying in bed when I was reading that, Kay. And I yelled. <laughs> I just went, ah, I just yelled. <laughs> <laughs> And your husband's like, what the hell are you reading? <laughs> oh, man. That was so, good. I like that. I'm glad you kept it. So did Thank you order you. ice stats for... <laughs> right? It's one of, you just gotta, gotta wait it out. Oh, <laughs> and that God. comes down to taking risks as a writer. You've got to do it that. Does. Don't mm-hmm. sit there and go, well, how is so-and-so going to think about this? or how? Don't judge. Just write it. Yeah. You know? That's true. But it's real life. You know, exactly. I, I was, I interviewed Honoré Corder uh, yesterday for the show 
and she coaches writers. She's, she's written over 50 books. You know, she's, she's an expert on most of this. And we're talking about being authentic and a lot of it comes from your experience. Both of you guys have some real good, real life experience. And sometimes people don't, and they try to write books without the experience. I mean, you don't have to, you know, I was talking about, somebody's asking me about, you know, writing a good fight scene. You know, I don't advocate going to a bar tonight and picking on the biggest guy there <laughs> and say that his girlfriend's ugly or something like that. You know, it's like not a good idea. You're going to wind up in the ER, you know, but you know, there's nothing wrong with putting on some boxing gloves and, you know, going at it with a heavy bag and you can see within two to three minutes, you're gassed. You know, mm-hmm. most real fights don't last very long. Cause you know, like I said, you know, it, it's like foot chases, you know, you see police stories where, you know, it's going on for like an hour. You're like, are you kidding me? One city block and you're done. You're wearing 30 or 40 pounds worth of crap. And you're chasing some kid that's half of your age, probably younger. And he's wearing tennis shoes and shorts and a t-shirt. And you're wearing combat boots and all your other goodies. And you know, it's like, but you, you have the radio. So you're hoping there's more of you out there that can, you know, snatch up whoever's running from you. But it makes it authentic, and I think readers can, they have bullshit meters, and they can tell if it's BS or not, you know, and that's, I think that's where you guys have a definite advantage, you know, you've lived life, you know, you've got some cool experiences under your belt, and you can translate those. Your reviews will let you know, I've, you know, I've had several that said they could tell that I did it, um, or at least knew about it, you know, Um, and that's always good, you know, it gives you credibility. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I think you could still get to it too, just using your resources, you know, yeah, like you know, be a reporter, interview a bunch of people like you guys. Exactly. If I'm going to write about that, you know, don't cut corners, you know, yep. and have real people that have done what you're you know, going to write about. So well, one of my help. characters was an exotic dancer. I knew nothing, John Snow. Yeah. About sure, you didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, wink, wink. Okay, no. all right. No, and so I had to um, dig a little deep on that. And I read some books. You know, I read the um, Striptease by Carl Heisen. Oh, yeah. And um, some, like that. And I watched some movies. But the most interesting thing was. <laughs> was googling lap dances on youtube and watching Uh, (laughs) oh that was an education let me tell you (laughs) talk about research well if we will be in vegas in november there's plenty of uh research there to be had there is no doubt about that (laughs) no doubt about that so since we're talking about reality and all that kind of good stuff what do you guys think are some of the biggest misconceptions, what you see on TV or movies for firefighting, firefighting shows, that kind of stuff? Go ahead, Kay. What jumps out okay. at you? Um, number one, facial hair on firefighters. You can't get a seal with your mask if right. you have facial hair. So you have to be clean shaven. So that drives me nuts, even with like cover images. And I know sometimes you have to work with what you've got at your disposal but no facial hair if you're going to be a firefighter so like i've seen some covers where it's like the firefighter's got a beard down to here and i'm like yeah that won't work it's just out so that i think is a big one um and then like i said the the visual part of it that you were talking about earlier where you actually and i get it cinematically for tv and movies you need to see the fire because a big black screen would not be entertaining um (laughs) but in a book you can get away with actually being authentic and talking about 
being blind in in a situation. Okay. How about you, Lolo? Well, there aren't there aren't that many uh, films about wildland firefighting, and I haven't seen the new Angelina Jolie one. But the ones I have seen, you know, it kills me when, when you have, you know, the smoke like red skies over Montana or something. They're standing there talking and doing all this drama, and here's this fire. <laughs> and it's like oh they're not really concerned they're because they want to do their lines they want to do this scene and i'm like but the fire's coming but, you know um but i do like always i thought they did a good job with that oh i remember that movie yeah yeah with audrey hepburn and richard dreyfus and yep um and the thing about being a air tanker pilot it is dangerous that is really dangerous work and they did show that in the movie at least and right. they, well it crashed but they did spoiler show alert uh, he crashed yeah but some of these you know i've watched this YouTube <laughs> video where some of these tankers in california they he barely cleared the hill when he went back up and you could hear people screaming on the video you know wow. but, okay i know i i used to watch rescue me that yeah. did have either of you guys watch that that's actually a pretty good resource for authenticity. Um, they used a lot of actual firefighters in there. My ex was one of them. He was FDMI, so he was really? actually on okay. that show several times. So they used a lot of real firefighters in that show. So that one's pretty authentic. Chicago Fire does the same thing. Actually, one of their main characters is a real firefighter. So really, um, okay, yeah, yeah. I just so I just thought the difference between Chicago Fire and Rescue Me was the ball busting where Chicago fire, they're trying so hard to be politically correct yes. and not hurt any feelings and rescue me. They didn't care. They made fun of everybody, which is reality. You know, I, nobody cares if you're in a house like that, or if you're in a police department, what religion you are, if you're straight, if you're gay, what color you are, nobody gives half of a shit. They just care if you're going to do the job. That's right. You have exactly. my back. Are you going to actually do this? Nobody cares. And nobody cares. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we don't get when the I remember, I forget what it was, but in Rescue Me, you know, Dennis Leary said something that's like, we don't know we're, who we're going to go save. And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, it's it's the white guy over there. Nah, I don't feel like saving a white guy today. You know, it's something like that. No, you know, for us, it's the same exact thing. We get a call. We go. We don't know who it is, who they are, you know, whatever. And we could really give two shits. You know, it's like, yeah. let's just get the job done and move on. You know, that's what drives me nuts. And all these shows that are on now, they're unwatchable to me because they're trying so hard and everything's so dramatic. And so, I mean, I understand that, you know, you got to have some drama or whatever, but I thought Rescue Me did a good job. There wasn't any good police shows for the most part that could capture that. Well, mm. doesn't Hill Street capture that a little bit? I mean, I'm watching yeah. that right now. You know, Hill Street was good as far as like they're human beings. You know, you have Belker who's chewing on a cigar all day. You know, he growls he at people. And, mom, yeah, but he talks to his mom. Yeah, he's worried about his mom, you know, and, and that kind of stuff is 100% correct. You know, it's like they are people, you know, firefighters, cops, whatever. They're people. They have human frailties. They're human beings just like everybody else. And yeah, they're going to do stupid stuff or they're going to do great stuff. That's just the way it is. All right. So both of you guys, what advice would you give to, say, your 20-year-old self or your 30-year-old self? In general? Yeah, in general or, you know, like your career choices, that kind of thing. Keep an open mind, I guess, to everything. And 
you know, experience everything you can when the opportunity presents itself. Yeah. Mine is you're not in charge. Let go of that wheel and see where life takes you. It's a lot more interesting. You stop trying to force it to go down a certain path and embrace, embrace what comes your way. Very nice. Very good. You know what? I think we'll end on that note. We've been going for, oh, geez, an hour and 15 minutes. Look at this. Oh, gosh. Uh, I know. <laughs> Time flies when we're having fun, kids. Uh-huh. All right. Kay, where can people find you? Uh, my website is kkennedy.com. I'm on Instagram as written by Kay. Uh, my Facebook group is Romance Reads at Kiss and Tell. My Facebook page has been shut down at the moment because of Facebook loveliness stuff. Yeah, dealing with that this week, that's fun. Um, Romance author stuff, yeah. Okay. Um, But I'm I'm always happy to help other authors. A lot of authors reach out. If you have questions about firefighters, you can reach me through my website. It's kkennedy.com. Okay, and Lolo? Um, Same with me. I'm at lolopage.com, and uh, my books are on Amazon and paperbacks available at Barnes and Noble and any Powell's, any bookstore, um, really. And, um, on Facebook, I'm at Lola wildland fire and same as what Kay said, if anybody has any questions, um, about wildland firefighting, you know, feel free to ask. I also want to, um, give a shout out to, um, the, uh, author's Authors Fire and Rescue page, Ken Shoemaker and Tom Squires. I want to thank Oh, yeah, them. absolutely. Yeah, because that's how I met Bobby Scopa. And she um, is all, she was the assistant director of fire operations for the U.S. Forest Service in Washington at oh. the end of her career. Okay. And we met up in Arizona. So that was pretty cool. Um, so, yeah. All right. Well, I can't tell you how much fun this was. And we're definitely going to have to do this again. I think we'll end this now to be continued hopefully later. How does that sound? Sounds great. great. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed episode 29 of the cops and writers podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Thank you. Kay Kennedy and Lolo page for being on the show today. I had a lot of fun chatting with the both of you. Both of you, both of you ladies are authentic and entertaining with a lot of real world life experience. I'm going to love watching both of your author careers skyrocket. Thanks to all of you who support my work by purchasing my reference books in the Cops and Writers series. Before I go, could you do me a favor? Could you please push the follow or subscribe button for this podcast? It would mean so much to me and make sure you don't miss an episode of the show. That's it for now. Thanks again, and let's be careful out there. <laughs>